all bad things. Tragedy. Tragedies, disasters. That's bad things. Trigger warning for everything possible. What? <laughs> I'm Rachel. And I'm David. And this is All Bad Things. Welcome, everybody. Welcome. Okay, follow us on Insta, X, Facebook, TikTok, Twitch, Blue Sky, and Threads at All Bad Things Pod. Email us at allbadthingspod at gmail.com. Join our Facebook discussion group, our Discord, and our subreddit. Do all of those things <laughs> in that order. <laughs> That took some very deliberate thought. I'm working yeah. on it, though. I'm getting there. Very good. I'm getting there. I would say the most interaction you will have with us is through our Facebook discuss- discussion group. Yes, but some people are not fa- not on Facebook. That is true. For um, those of you that are. Yes, and for those of you who are not, probably X slash Twitter. But um, I'm trying to Did you mention get threads? More, yeah. Okay. Yes, I did. I'm trying to get more active on Blue Sky and Threads, okay. which is basically Twitter. I have not been on Blue Sky at all. Really? And I occasionally use Threads, just not that much, which is fine. I was using Twitter too much towards the end anyway. Yes. <laughs> I think you were, <laughs> yeah. you were an end stage Twitter. <laughs> I was an end stage. I was, but I got off right before X happened. Yes. <laughs> I was like one of the last off the ship. <laughs> Before it sank. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah. So here we are. What is it? Uh, 16, not even 14 hours later after <laughs> recording so. the first episode of this topic. Yeah. About that. So, yeah. We got finished around 1.40 in the morning. Was it? Mm-hmm. Okay. okay. It's the same day. It is the same day. This is a two for a day. <laughs> yes, it is. So, we are still on our polio topic, and this is part two, Warm Springs, Cold Wars, and a Man Named Salt. Hmm. So, intro, poliomyelitis, commonly known as polio, is an infectious disease with known roots going back hundreds or thousands of years, but with a well-known prolonged outbreak in the mid-20th century. Among its potential complications are meningitis, paralysis, and death. The fact that polio is no longer a major health concern in most of the world is a testament to the efficacy and necessity of vaccines. And we will be especially discussing vaccines today. Primary sources are the American Academy of Achievement, Biography.com, The Lancet, the National Library of Medicine, the Salk Institute, the Scientific History Institute, Scientific American, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, the Washington Post, Wikipedia, and the World Health Organization. All right. Impressive. Yes, indeed. Very lofty resources. (laughs) So we left off last week in the 1952 polio virus epidemic, the worst on record, over 57,000 recorded cases, 21,000 instances of paralysis, 3,000 deaths. Like, this is major. Yeah. So as I said, things were getting pretty dire, and people, especially parents, since kids tended to get polio, were getting pretty scared. There was a large public demand for treatment and, more importantly, a cure. They did not get a cure, but they did get the next best thing. And here is where we have a fun deep dive on the development of one of the most famous vaccines in history. And to do this, we'll go back to Brooklyn, 1914. On October 28, 1914, Jonas Edward Salk was born to Daniel and Dora Salk. A fun sidebar, my grandpa was born on October 28th, 1936, 22 years to the day in Brooklyn. Right Mm after, yeah, that's crazy. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just a fun little connection. They exist in the same world. (laughs) Yeah. Daniel, so uh, Jonas's father, was the son of immigrants, and Dora was an immigrant who had been born in Minsk, which is modern-day Belarus. Neither Daniel nor Dora were well-educated, and the family, which included Jonas's two younger brothers, was not particularly well-off. So they had kind of like a working-class family. And we have a picture of Jonas as a kid and his family, him and his family. Oh, okay. 
very uh very sharp looking family yeah even even working class families knew how to like dress, dress for a photo. up and yep everyone well, true, had a suit back then for a photo that was like an occasion and an expense like, like we're gonna yeah. take a photo together it's so funny how photo shoots have changed oh, over yeah. the years like you can see where this was obviously like a private photo shoot with a photographer yeah. but then it morphed into it like the Olin portrait. Mills days yeah. Do you, did you ever go to Olin Mills uh, or did I, you do the Sears in the mall? I was gonna say mm-hmm. I think uh, I was trying to. It is Sears. Mm-hmm. I think Sears sounds like it was the same thing that we experienced. The Sears photo studio. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We did Olin Mills, and I I remember <laughs> I remember Olin Mills. <laughs> um. Yeah. Back when Sears like sold everything. Yes. And, and now they're they're gone, right? Yeah. They're done. Pretty sure. Uh huh. That's crazy. It is. It is kind of wild. How some of those anchor stores are, like, gone Mm -hmm. and done for. So because they didn't have education opportunities themselves, Daniel and Dora highly encouraged their children to pursue education. When he was 13, Jonas qualified to attend the Townsend Harris Hall Prep School, an all-boys public prep school in Harlem. Other notable alumni included um, Ira Gershwin of George and Ira Gershwin, Edward G. Robinson, Okay. Clifton Webb, Cornell Wilde, and Alexander Sachs, who has a connection to our Downwinders episode, he delivered the Einstein Slizard letter to Roosevelt about the atomic bomb. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, this school was no joke. It was considered extremely prestigious. It required that all students finish their four year high school education in three years, which okay. Jonas did. Sure. Um, interestingly, to close out the story of Townsend Harris Prep in 1942, then mayor of New York, Fiorella LaGuardia, mm. closed the school, supposedly due to budget cuts, but some speculated it's because he had a kid related to him who was declined attendance. <laughs> so pettiness. Yeah. I think it did get reopened, though, years later under a different, well, under a similar name. But anyway. Pettiness is always a better reason. <laughs> yeah, right. Jonas went on to attend the City College of New York, CCNY, not to be confused with CSNY, (laughs) totally different. That is. (laughs) Where he earned his Bachelor of Science in Chemistry by age 20. City College was known for being extremely tough to get into, but those who did attend were given free tuition. Okay. Back in the day when that was a thing. I think you have to, what is it, the Fulbright Scholarship you go for free? But anyway, like, it's, nobody goes to college for free anymore. But it allowed for people from less privileged circumstances to attend college. Um, Now, prior to going to CCNY, I almost said CSNY, uh, Jonas was leaning towards a career in law, but his mother encouraged him to become a doctor. According to one account, she said he would never succeed in a courtroom because he couldn't even win an argument with her. (laughs) Well, yeah, it's not not a lawyer to be made, then, is it? But to be fair, does anyone ever really win an argument against their mother? Sure. I would posit, no, yeah. not really. Because even if you t- win on the merits of the points, you lose. You lose uh, hard I, in the end. I disagree. <laughs> no, you know what I mean. Like, your yes. mom's going to punish you emotionally for the rest of your life based on it. No, I'm very specific mother, so you shouldn't do that. But anyway... So he switched to chemistry to prepare for med school. Now, this is a Jewish man Mm -hmm. trying to learn and build a profession in 1930s America. So he had, (laughs) Jonas had his work cut out for him. A lot of prestigious medical schools, including most of those in the Ivy League, had so-called Jewish quotas in place. Had you ever heard of this? No, Jewish but I, quota. I'm not shocked given the time period we're right? in. Right, <laughs> like not at all. It was a thing where, like, colleges and and medical schools and law schools and stuff literally had caps on the number of Jewish students they well, would enroll. That is kind of the amazing thing about Jews is that they're they are just like. I've never understood why, but they're, they're, it's, they're not just hated by, like, Nazis. Right? <laughs> they're, they're, they're hated by all sorts of groups of different people. 
all white people for the most part. That's the yeah. problem. Like, white supremacists <laughs> I mean, have a problem with Jewish people. They, it's have very a, they have a major problem with them. In America, in Canada, uh, all over the world. I mean, it's, it's crazy when you think about it. it Anti-Semitism is a very odd phenomenon to me. And the odd phenomenon of World War II, yes, we were in it uh, somewhat to, it wasn't the whole thing, but a major part of it was to save Jewish, Jewish people, people yes. while rampant anti-Semitism <laughs> Is going on in America. It's so like, weird. It's, it is weird. It, it is very weird. <laughs> it's, yeah. I mean, it's, man, America's just been like one long contradiction for like a long time. It's very it's, true. It's, it's weird. It is weird. It's very weird. Yeah. Um, Jonas was able to enroll at the local New York University School of Medicine, known for another famous medical alumnus, Walter Reed. Oh, Walter Reed uh, Medical? Uh, it's Whatever army the, the army base, yeah. Uh, yeah, it, that's where um, presidents go, mm-hmm. right? Yep. If they need that's true uh, treatment, yeah. If, if they if they suddenly need a test to say camera, woman, man, person, TV. <laughs> 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 I don't know if I got that right or not. But... Right. What was that from? What happened? He had to get a cognitive test. Trump and, did. And yeah. He thought it was like the greatest thing ever that he answered all the questions right. <laughs> Uh, do you think they sent, um, what's his name, the guy who couldn't answer for, like, 30 seconds? Do you think they sent him to Walter Reed? <laughs> uh, Which oh, one? Mitch. It's not Mitch, Lin- McConnell. Mitch McConnell. Yeah, it's um, not Lindsey Graham. It's the other one. No, Mitch McConnell will, will live to be, like, 112. Like, we already know this. But be demented in the process. Yeah. Just like, uh, still... what, Diane Feinstein? Or, uh, Henry Kissinger. Like, yeah. he'll just, he'll still be alive. Well, like, but I, somehow. is Kissinger, does he have dementia or other mental issues? I, know. I think he's just, I think he's just, just 100 years old, <laughs> but he's still hanging in there. Uh, which proves there is no God. Uh, yeah. <sighs> and Mitch, you know Mitch, he loves his power. He's going to, it's not like he's not going to run. Power is a strong motivator to remain alive, <laughs> yes, isn't it? it? Is. Jesus Christ. So in his time in medical school, are you going to say something? No. Okay. <laughs> I will save it. Okay. In his time in medical school, though he did all the stuff you have to do to become a qualified practicing physician, Jonas became drawn to the research side of medical science. He would later say that his overarching motivations for pursuing a career in medical research was, quote, to be of some help to humankind, so to speak, in a larger sense than just a one-to-one basis, end quote. And boy, did he achieve that. So while at med school, Jonas spent a year researching influenza. The flu virus had only been discovered earlier in the 1930s, so this was very cutting-edge research. The research he participated in determined that it was possible to, in their words, quote, destroy the virus infectivity and still immunize, end quote. Which is obviously big for a virus that had killed millions of people a couple decades uh, earlier. After medical school, Jonas entered into a research fellowship in virology at the University of Michigan, studying influenza with Dr. Thomas Francis. And this is Jonas. He's on the right. And that is Dr. Francis. Okay. And this was big for Jonas because Dr. Francis was the first person to isolate the influenza virus in the U.S. and was doing groundbreaking work on influenza vaccines. It was during this fellowship that Jonas became dedicated to virology under the guidance and mentorship of Dr. Francis. Together, they worked on a project commissioned by the U.S. Army to develop a flu vaccine, which they did and which was used widely in Army bases during World War II. Sure. So now I'm going to kind of stop here and point out something pretty important. So as Sulk was in his med school and his fellowship days, like in his education days, this was the late 30s and early 40s, right? Who was the president then? Oh, it was still FDR. Quite possibly the most famous American polio survivor. That's true. That's right. Right? (laughs) Yeah. Franklin Delano Roosevelt. So... As much I mean, as, it caught up to him later in life. But. Well, so let's talk about it. As much as That's polio crazy, is associated yeah. with children, of course, as we mentioned, adults can get it. And with when adults get polio, it is more likely to be paralytic and potentially fatal. Sure. Roosevelt did not get childhood polio. 
I never knew that. I never knew that either. I didn't know. I, I thought just it was knew, something he always had. Right? Same. That's, that's, no. Wow. So he, I think I read he uh, married Eleanor by like 1905. They already had kids. The whole bit. He didn't contract polio until 1921. He was 39. Wow. He was almost 40 years old. So it, it was the summer of 1921. He was well on his way in his political career by that point. Sure. He already served as a New York State Senator. He was an assistant, the Assistant Secretary of the Navy during World War One. Wow. Um, during that time, he was one of the millions who got influenza in the, oh, shit. the great and, and epidemic. Survived, right? obviously. Yep, exactly. Um, in nineteen twenty, he ran for vice president with Democratic nominee James Cox, but they lost to Warren G. Harding and Calvin Coolidge, his running mate. Mm -hmm. Um, Coolidge, by the way, would go on to become president a couple years later when Harding died of a heart attack in office. So so that was his first White House run, was as VP back in 1920. The summer after that defeat, FDR was on vacation in Maine when he came down with a fever and muscle aches. Um, it turned out to be polio, and it turned out to be paralytic polio. That's <laughs> just, again, like this thing that could paralyze you is just... Out there. I mean, mm-hmm. that's... I can't even imagine. Just yep. cannot. As he described, quote, I tried to persuade myself that the trouble with my leg was muscular, that it would disappear as I used it, but presently it refused to work, Then the and then the other, end quote. Wow. So this is a, like, this guy's got generational wealth. He is a rich and influential white man. He got the best medical treatment possible, but the best medical treatment possible couldn't cure this, right? Um, It very well may have saved his life, though, because he was very sick for a while. There are... Um, he, he even came pretty close to dying yeah. at that point. Oh, Can sure. you imagine the different trajectory of the United States if FDR uh, hadn't been president? I don't even want to. I, I know. I don't even know who would, yeah, let's not even think about it. It's parallel universe not to be spoken <laughs> yes. of, right? Um, Say it in the mirror three times. <laughs> not that he was a perfect person or a perfect president, but... Yeah. Yeah. Like, the, the Japanese have a beef with the... <laughs> Rightfully so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So while he escaped with his life, FDR would live the rest of his life paralyzed from the waist down. That's nuts. He was able to be relatively mobile with the assistance of leg braces and canes. He did have a wheelchair, but he avoided using it in public, right? It was very much an image thing. He was trying not to appear quote-unquote weak. We have, of course, we know there's nothing weak about using a wheelchair if it Mobility is an issue, but he back in the forties plus it's, the it's optics. A, it's a com- it's, yeah, completely different. It uh, sure perspective. Is. It sure is. Um, also, I didn't put this in um, the script, but I kind of should have. Um, people who survived polio were pretty instrumental in the Americans with Disabilities Act I'm and getting that, that passed. Mm-hmm. I was just about to mention, like he's also doing this at a time when. Just trying to function as yes. a person with a disability isn't very easy just on its own. It's not easy today. Imagine no. what it was like before any legal protections, yeah. essentially. Like everything mm-hmm. had, oh, like every building has stairs that go straight up. Yep. How mm-hmm. am I supposed to get to the second floor? Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, it doesn't have an elevator either. Well, it's shocking that it took as long as it did for accessibility <laughs> to be addressed. It, it took <laughs> It took uh, George H.W. Bush. Yeah. Yep. To do it. For, for the ADA to be passed. Yep. Absolutely. Um, so he would often give speeches standing up and either being supported by like aides or one of his sons, or he would hold on to the lectern to support himself. Sure. And of as course. a result, he became known for like emphasizing his points with like head nods instead of broad hand gestures. Because he had to hold on the whole he time. Li- he did. It was for actual support. So here's a picture of FDR in his leg braces mm-hmm. under his suit there. You can see and, and there's also uh, and there was also like uh, what is kind of infamous slash famous at this time is the press didn't want to take pictures of him in a wheelchair or anything like that because they thought that that kind of intruded on his privacy. Mm-hmm. That would never happen today. 
know. <laughs> in fact, the second anybody sees Joe Biden in a wheelchair, whoever took that photo will be an instant cajillionaire. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, interestingly, yeah, the public perception of FDR was generally that he was very physically fit. That was not by accident. That was pure, oh, that was absolutely pure by propaganda. design. Yeah. He definitely worked to give off an image of being in excellent health, and he was quite physically fit, and especially his, his upper, upper body. body yep. yeah. He worked very hard to stay fit um, as a part of deliberate effort to overcome the effects of polio. Sure. So... <clears throat> As a parenthetical to this whole sidebar about FDR, I will say and, and disclose that there is some controversy over whether FDR even had polio. There is some people posit that that was a misdiagnosis and that he may have had Guillain-Barre syndrome. Okay. Uh, what I will say, my perception is for the purposes of this story, it kind of doesn't matter. Go ahead. FDR thought that he had polio, whether he did or not. The world thought he had polio, and the effects were similar regardless, whether it was Guillain-Barre or polio. And it was was also at a time where something like that could have easily been misdiagnosed. Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And maybe 80 years later, he looked back at it and was like, no, it was this and this and that, Mm -hmm. so it wasn't, but you wouldn't have known that at the time. You're still trying to deal with uh, getting through it. Mm Mm-hmm. And now you're on to getting a vaccine, getting a cure, getting anything you can just yeah. to, like, I, I still cannot, like, I'm going out, I'm going outside to get the mail, and I come back in and I have polio. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, I know it's not like the exact no. mechanism, but I know what you're saying, yeah. that it developed so quickly, mm-hmm. yeah, into paralysis, yeah. Um... So the reason I mention all of this is to say, you know, between these outbreaks that were getting worse and worse every, like basically every summer, and the fact that there was a hugely public figure, the most public figure in the United States, who was a polio survivor, polio was incredibly visible in America and in the American psyche. Um, Very true. So, yeah, and and the polio had a very public face, FDR, who died in office. Now, not, uh, I I don't, I did not delve into whether he had post-polio syndrome or anything else, but. It didn't um, happen. Yeah, right. Let's put it that way. Mm -hmm. In 1927, FDR and several friends founded the Georgia Warm Springs Foundation, focused on the polio epidemic. It was called that because Roosevelt went to Warm Springs, Georgia, beginning in 1924, to try to rehab from his post-polio syndrome. And that's FDR in the Warm Springs. And it was kind of one of those, you know how, like, back in the day, health spas were sort of like... of course. Mineral spas. Yes, Mineral Springs, Hot Springs, the idea of... My hometown had a boom in, like, the... Around the Civil War era. Right after it ended, we had had a Hot Springs. Yeah. And they... And they were thought to be, like, healing properties Mm -hmm. and things like that. And it was, like, you know... And to a degree it was. There were, like, sulfur mines and stuff like that Mm -hmm. that were, you know... Had actual chemicals or whatever. Correct. Like... Mm -hmm. And, I mean, think about it at that time, like, a hot springs. Think about that in, like, the 1860s. Right. Like, <laughs> you've never taken a bath with, like, right? hot, hot water, water or warm water. <laughs> so now, like, a hot springs is just like, this is amazing. Uh-huh. Of course it cures everything. Get the co- I feel great. <laughs> get the cocaine because that cures everything, too. <laughs> <laughs> cocaine and hot springs, all you need. <laughs> that must have been an amazing time. <laughs> Um, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, what? it's interesting. If I become president, that's what I'm bringing to every neighborhood. <laughs> Cocaine and hot springs. <laughs> Cocaine in every nose and hot springs in every watering hole. In every backyard. <laughs> um, uh... But, and it's interesting that water still does play a major role in a lot of rehabbing. People, a lot of people who are yeah. injured end up um, rehabbing in the water because of especially the, the last, uh, yeah, especially like the last couple decades, like knee Sports surgery. Sports injuries and stuff Rehabbing like that, a knee, yeah. like doing it underwater has mm-hmm. become like, it's like, duh, why didn't we think of this before? Mm-hmm. Yep. So. Yeah, yeah, water's kind of crucial to. Life. Know, yes. Everything. <laughs> Um, 
1938, the Georgia Warm Springs Foundation reorganized as the National Foundation for Infantile Paralysis. Decades later, it would become known as the March of Dimes. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. A name it still operates under today. Sure. It was called that because they used to sell pins for a dime each to raise money. The National Foundation for Infantile Paralysis did. I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna shout out my sister Trina who used to work for the March of Dimes. Oh, okay. I think it, it was a while ago, but yeah, she did work for them for like I don't know three or four years. Okay, for a we'll have bit. to ask her about that. Yeah. Um. So, back when they were in the National Foundation for Infantile Paralysis, they did this thing where they sold these pins for a dime to raise funds, and actor, comedian, entertainer Eddie Cantor came up with the name the March of Dimes because it was a play on the name The March of Time, which at that time was a popular newsreel series. Time as in Time Incorporated of Time Magazine. Time Magazine, among many others. Now this all wraps back around to Jonas Salk, so let's get back to him. So when Salk's fellowship in virology was finished, he started becoming interested in the polio virus. He wondered if a vaccine could be developed for that virus just as it had for the influenza virus. In 1947, he was given his own lab at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine, where he was appointed as the director of the Virus Research Laboratory. Between FDR's foundation raising awareness, the increasing ferocity of the annual polio epidemics, by the late 1940s and early 50s, polio was a major concern on all fronts. And for that reason, funding increased, eventually reaching $67 million by 1955. That's about $764 million today. Wow, okay. Mm -hmm. I was going to say that's probably close to a billion today. It's three quarters of it. Including huge investments by private industry, unless we think that's all for humanitarian reasons. There was reason for laboratories to try and come up with a vaccine because there was money to be made in that, right? Of course. There's your conspiracy theory right there. <laughs> it was funded. Uh, yeah. Yes, it was. <laughs> so, of course, Jonas wasn't the only person working on a polio vaccine. In fact, he, he wasn't even the first person to even create a sex- successful polio vaccine. That actually was Hilary Kaprowski, a virologist working for Leaderly Laboratories. He came up with an orally administered attenuated vaccine. Let's pause. Sidebar. Vaccine types. Okay. So we now live in a world of mRNA vaccines. That is beyond amazing. It is absolutely mind-blowing what happened with the COVID vaccine of being an, an ability to roll out on a large scale. The technology of an mRNA vaccine is amazing. Um, but that is incredibly recent. This is not the time that we're talking not about, what you're right? Back then. No. Um, And uh, every single one of us who does not have a legitimate medical reason to not get the COVID vaccine are required to get it in order to behave as an ethical, moral, and human being. uh, Ethical and moral human being. I said what I said. Get your goddamn vaccine. Period. End of story. Anyway, that was a soapbox. Back in the 1950s, no such thing as mRNA vaccines. There were Two, type, two types, they're not the only ones, but the ones that we'll be focusing on of vaccines. They were inactivated vaccines and live attenuated vaccines. Inactivated vaccines included deactivated or dead versions of the virus that they're targeting in order to build immunity. Some inactivated vaccines include the flu shot, hepatitis A, and rabies. Those are inactivated injections. Then there are live attenuated vaccines, which contain a weakened or attenuated version of the virus to build immunity. Some live attenuated vaccines include the measles, mumps, rubella, MMR vaccine, smallpox, and chickenpox. Mm. There are pros and cons to each of these two types. The inactivated vaccines can sometimes not cause as strong of an immune response. They may require more frequent boosters over time. The live attenuated vaccines do contain very small amounts of a weakened virus, so it is possible that they can cause problems for immunocompromised individuals. Um, In all cases, just 
PSA, the most important thing is for a person to talk to their doctor about what vaccines are appropriate for their individual health situation, but most healthy individuals will be able to get most vaccines without any major issues at all. And you talk to a medical professional, duly licensed and and authorized to practice medicine. You do not listen to the internet. You do not listen to fucking news pundits or Charlie Kirk or Ben Shapiro or any of those fuck faces. You listen to actual medical professionals. Those are people who actually know what the fuck they're talking about here. That's who you listen to. That's a box moment. Back down. <laughs> okay, getting back to Hillary Kaprowski. He had created this live attenuated oral polio vaccine. So a vaccine taken by mouth that contained a weakened version of the polio virus. And it worked. The problem was it required a lot of long-term study to make sure it could be rolled out on a wider scale. Time is, is definitely That's something. The, the, it's a time crunch, mm-hmm. right? It's kind of like a race to the vaccine at this point yeah we got something but it's going to take more time to make sure it's effective and safe hmm. Mm -hmm. but live attenuated viruses were the major protocol of the day so that's why it was being pursued another doctor working on that type of vaccine was albert sabin of the university of cincinnati and sulk decided he was going to take a different tack he decided to work on the idea of an inactivated vaccine which a lot of his peers kind of poo-pooed, especially Sabin. He was quite outspoken that that was not the route to go. Salk wrote articles about his theory of using the inactivated vaccine or virus, well, an inactivated vaccine approach, and that caught the attention of the National Foundation for Infantile Paralysis. So Salk started working with the foundation, so bringing it back to FDR there. By 1951, Salk had identified three distinct strains of the polio virus. By the following year, Salk and his team created the first effective inactivated vaccine for polio. They used formaldehyde to kill the virus, but it didn't destroy its antigenic properties. In March of 1953, they had conducted a small-scale test on both adults and children, and apparently very early on, Sulk injected himself, his wife, and his kids as test subjects. Well, I mean... (laughs) That's confidence in your product, right? (laughs) Um, And that test was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association. One of the challenges of the clinical research phase of this rollout, this or this study of this vaccine, was producing enough of the vaccine to administer in larger-scale clinical trials. In 1954, Dr. Leon... Norwood Farrell helped spearhead a, I don't know if it's, no, if it's Leon or Leona, but anyway, spearheaded a Canadian effort to create a lab process they called the Toronto Method, which did just that. They were able to to um, produce this vaccine on a large scale. Okay. So they kind of overcame that issue. So she was very instrumental in in that. And, and think of the momentum you have going at this Yes, at this and the funding. And there just, is also funding yes. behind this. Very importantly, there yes. is funding. By spring 1954, the Francis Field Trial began, led by Salk's old mentor, Thomas Francis. They started out with 4,000 kids at an elementary school in Virginia, and eventually the study involved over 1.8 million children all over the country, 440,000 of whom received the vaccine. Others were control groups or placebo. But sure. The results of the study were announced in April 1955. The vaccine was highly effective, 60 to 70% effective against poliovirus type 1, over 90% effective against poliovirus types 2 and 3, and 94% effective against the deadliest type of polio, bulbar paralytic polio. Those are the ones that affect the brainstem and you're basically gone. Yeah. Or have a big chance of being gone. Yeah. Salk's vaccine was licensed for use in 1955 and the National Foundation for Infantile Paralysis heavily campaigned for children to get vaccinated. Unfortunately, right out of the gate, Salk's vaccine experienced a major setback, one that could qualify as its own bad thing. So remember that the idea behind Salk's vaccine was that the virus contained in it was completely inactivated, Mm. right? But in August 1954, Bernice Eddy, a scientist at the National Institutes of Health, NIH, 
was testing samples from a batch of the vaccine manufactured by Cutter Laboratories in Berkeley, California. One of the tests apparently involved injecting the vaccines into test monkeys. They're still doing mm, animal testing. Sure, yeah. But from the 1950s. She, <clears throat> she found out that three of the six samples from Cutter Laboratories gave the test monkeys paralytic polio. Uh, that's that's a problem. Good. So obviously this meant there was a problem in the manufacturing process at Cutter and the virus had not been properly killed. So basically, they had injected these monkeys with polio, active polio virus. She reported her findings to her boss, William Workman, the head of the NIH Laboratory of Biologics Control. He did not report Bernice's findings to the Polio Licensing Committee, and the Cutter vaccine made it to the market, along with the other Mm. manufactured vaccines, the ones that were properly manufactured from other batches, other manufacturers. Over the next two weeks, several cases of outbreaks of polio in people who had just been vaccinated by the Cutter vaccine were reported. A total of 25 cases of paralysis or death were linked to the incorrectly manufactured Cutter batch. I figured you would appreciate this because you understand that manufacturing process. I do. And I can't imagine what it would have been like uh, 70 years ago. Mm Mm-hmm. Um... I mean, looking back on it, and uh, <clears throat> it's a little different than what I do now, but looking back on what I used to, used to do, like the equipment I worked with, it's just like, wow, like I worked with that kind of stuff. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and knew how to make a batch. Like, th- that's what they're talking about. Right. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. and it's the same, like, if, if anybody out there is watching Breaking Bad for the first yeah, time. Yeah, right. <laughs> The batches that he's talking about, like, that's an actual, it's an industrial term. Mm -hmm. You're making a batch. Every batch has its number. Every batch has... Control. Exactly. Control and tracking. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep, tracing. Because if you get a bad batch, you need to be able to find out where it all came from and and get it back. Every single thing is checked Mm -hmm. off on who did what and, yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and they they did. They traced where this came from. Of course. That's, um, that's how they figured it out. Mm-hmm. And cutter vaccines were pulled from the market, were recalled on April 27th. And then on May 6th, they halted polio vaccines altogether mm. out of an abundance of caution, basically. They tested the products additionally, you know, outside of the cutter vaccines, make sure all the rest were okay. They were fine. Vaccinations resumed by May 15th. Okay. Um, unfortunately, it did increase, you know, vaccine hesitancy. Sure. For understandable reasons. That is not a good look. No. In a brand new vaccine. That's rough. That's rough. Legal actions against Cutter had mixed results. They were found in court not to have been negligent because they, they were like, look, this is a complicated manufacturing process of a brand new product, but they were held financially liable for damages, which probably that was the right right result. Mm -hmm. Kind of remarkably, even with that blow early on, the vaccine did eventually start to build up steam, and it's a good thing it did because it definitely worked. After reaching record highs of nearly 60,000 reported cases in 1952, by 1957, there were just 5,600 reported cases of polio in the states that's a 90 percent decrease i was just gonna say imagine Mm -hmm. that must have been think of how incredible that must have been Mm -hmm. and that number just continued to fall each year by 1961 there were 161 confirmed cases of polio in the united states so in basically or in less than a decade they completely turned it around using this vaccine Mm -hmm. Importantly, the World Health Organization had been founded in 1948 and was up and running and funded in time to help with the global rollout of the polio vaccine. Despite his massive contributions to one of the greatest medical breakthroughs in the 20th century, Jonas Salk notably never received the Nobel Prize for his work. He was kind of shunned a little bit by the scientific and medical community. Um... And lest we completely lionize the man, he was human, obviously. And there are accusations that he downplayed contributions from the rest of his team, as well as scientists that had come before him that conducted groundbreaking research. Let's face it, there's there's ego that comes with all of this. Yep, yep. Um, 
so probably a little bit of all of this is true. It, it could the, be. But at the same time, like, you didn't even need to give him a Nobel Prize for scientific reasons. You could have given him a Nobel Prize for peace. Yeah, well, and... I mean, really. And notably, and this does speak to, you know, in the spirit of balance here, it is notable that he chose not to patent his vaccine. That yes. was a deliberate choice. He could have made a killing off financially My off God. of this. Like, the, the amount. But he instead opted for faster, faster and easier distribution of his life-saving invention. So, I'm I'm not trying to say he was perfect, but that's what he did was but huge. What it what it what it shows is that he's human. Mm-hmm. Of course, he has the exactly. ego. Nobody's perfect. Yeah, he's gonna maybe cut somebody out here or there, and he wants the credit. But at the same time, you know, it's... and and choosing not to patent it is big. <laughs> It, that's gigantic. Yeah. Because it would have had to have gone through, well, who am I selling it to? Mm-hmm. And when they buy it, what's their process going to be? And mm-hmm. is it going to be the same as mine? And and no, he's like, no, this just needs to get out into the world. He could have been, like, basically the richest man, and he chose oh, instead God, yeah. to just be the most humanitarian. Which yes. Is, which is big. Now, it's also important to recognize the time and the global stage in which this all happened, because anything that happens in the 1950s in the United States is part of a proxy war. war. (laughs) It just is. Yes. Intentionally, as we've come to learn. And the USSR made everything a battle. (laughs) Um, And so went the polio vaccine. So the state of polio in the USSR was an interesting one because of the timing. So Joseph Stalin was like, what polio? There is no such thing as polio. Speaking of denialism. uh, Good old Uncle Joe. So next time someone denies something that's a reality, you should say, oh, so you're taking the Stalin approach. (laughs) Because famously, this communist dictator also denied denied, polio. So you're taking the Stalin approach. I see. And if you compare someone who's being a denialist to a communist, they're going to have a problem with that. Yes. (laughs) <laughs> well, you would hope. Uh, well, yeah. So Stalin died in 1953, and fortunately, cooler heads in the Kremlin <laughs> prevailed, and they're like, "No, this is actually killing people. We need to address this." They're like, "So <laughs> now that he's dead, <laughs> you were, we need to we need to talk about this." <laughs> this thing that he was saying is not true at all. In fact, it is indeed happening, and we can get this thing if you want. Right. Mm-hmm. Maybe. In 1955, the Polio Research Institute was founded in Moscow, and in early 1956, its director, virologist Mikhail Chumakov, visited the United States on a mission to learn about the state's vaccination program with the United States' permission. So this was like something that was sort of begrudgingly like, well, we're not going to not let the Russians find out about this because that's actually hurting Russian citizens or Soviet citizens. Um, Interestingly, they forced uh, Chumikov and his contingent to travel by train for, quote, security reasons. (laughs) I guess they, (laughs) they were concerned about terrorism, but... Um, Chimikov and his contingent visited labs across the country, including Salks in Pittsburgh and Albert Sabin's in Cincinnati. And Sabin managed to convince Chumikov, hey, ignore Salks shit. Like, my live attenuated oral vaccine is the way to go. And he and Chumikov yeah. really hit it off. So he ended up, so um, Sabin ended up go- touring the USSR on basically like a press junket to convince the country, like, you need to adopt my vaccine, not Salk's. And one of the reasons was he needed a large population to test his vaccine. That makes sense, too. But so many people in the States were now vaccinated by Salk's vaccine. But that was not the case in the USSR. This was an untouched population. So he was able to start rolling out his vaccine in clinical trials, basically, in the USSR. Um, After initial results appeared to show that the oral vaccine was safe and effective, the Soviet Union rolled it out to millions. So it was, and over time, like it has proven to be, yes, it's a generally safe and and effective vaccine. Um, It was just difficult to confirm at the time because the Soviets quote unquote clinical trials were not done on the same standards as 
American ones. So they did not necessarily have the same control groups, placebos, stuff like that. Right. Um, so the U.S. was hesitant at first to kind of say, yes, the success in the, in the USSR proves that this vaccine is safe and effective. <laughs> <laughs> because you don't want to give the USSR credit for anything. Well, obviously. plus there were different standards. Sure. So. Um, by 1961, though, Sabin's vaccine was commercially available and soon overtook Salk's vaccine as the preferred method of vaccination due to multiple factors, including its oral administration, right? If kids are afraid of needles, they don't have to worry with an oral vaccination. Sure. It's also easier to administer orally, right, in mass. Um, and there was also some memory of the loss of confidence in Salk's vaccine from the Cutter incident. I mean, so. Sure. Yeah. By 1987, a new injection of increased vaccination potency became the norm in the U.S. The standard protocol now is a shot as a newborn, another dose around four months, a third dose between six and 18 months, and a booster before the kid goes into school, like around kindergarten age. Boo. <laughs> From the anti-vax you don't, you don't know what you're talking about. Mm. Some guy on the internet said something else. And that... And that is so much more important than decades of proven efficacy. Sure, sure. Um, so, and some I, I, countries... I had to work with a guy for a little bit that actually oh, believed that shit. And it was just like, okay. You know what I say now at this point? <laughs> fuck you. Just fuck you to people who think that. I'm sorry. Anyway, sorry, not sorry. Some countries include another booster during adolescence. Now, despite this new protocol... The oral vaccine was used more broadly in the goal to globally eradicate polio because it was easier to administer, right? Once you get needles involved, that's a whole other ball game. Well, and, it, and it's a whole other supply issue yes. as well. It's a whole other... It's it. The more simplistic the, the yep. form of inoculation or... Right. You know, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. I mean, the, literally, just it takes a whole lot of logistics stuff out of it. Yes. So, yes, mm -hmm. if there is, like, some sort of an oral, even it's like a tablet that dissolves. It's That's, drops, I believe, right. is what they do. Mm -hmm. Way easier than a needle. Mm -hmm. And easier to produce, too. Mm -hmm. Because, mm -hmm. yeah. And typically it doesn't require um, the same type of storage and stuff. Well, and, it, also, and... it also doesn't re require the same type of validation. Validation for the, this type of stuff takes about mm -hmm. six to eight months alone. Huh. And huh. that's if you're... That's if you're going as fast Looking as you can. Looking at, yeah. So. Huh. By 1988, the World Health Organization launched the Global Polio Eradication Initiative. By the mid-90s, polio was eliminated from North and South America. Just, uh, can you imagine that? Having going grown from, up in those circumstances. Mm -hmm. where... Within 30, 30, well, 30, yeah, uh, 40 years sure. completely uh, I mean, and it had already dropped massively sure. prior to But being that. an adult and being like, okay, I got through that, but man, I knew so many other kids mm -hmm. that caught it, mm -hmm. or and adults too, mm -hmm. and now mm -hmm. it's like, it's kind of like, it's over. Mm -hmm. it's yeah, like, it's that's like, huh? wild. I know. Well, it's like AIDS, right? Or HIV and AIDS is HIV used to be a literal death sentence, uh -huh. and now people can live just like, eh. virtually normal lives. Yeah. Um, with HIV, with no viral load detected. It's, it's wild. Yeah. It, it is wild. By 2000, dozens of other countries were polio-free, with Europe joining in 2002 and India joining in 2014. The WHO estimates that vaccines have prevented 20 million cases of polio and over 1.5 million deaths of children and infants. Hmm. So... When we say vaccines save lives, this is exactly it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Over the past decade or so, the primary countries where polio outbreaks still occur are neighbors Pakistan and Afghanistan. I mean, Pakistan has a, Pakistan is not a first world country, but it's not a third. It's a it's it, a now developing. we call developed yes. or undeveloped or developing. Nations. They are developing. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, Afghanistan just will be in constant. Well, here's an interesting thing, yeah. and I did not know this. So these countries have a long history of hostility towards vaccination efforts, thanks in no small part to the United States. Did you know this? In the late 2000s and early 2010s, when the CIA was closing in on Osama bin Laden, what? the CIA used a fake hepatitis vaccination campaign 
as a cover to get DNA information from bin Laden's children so they could narrow down where he was located based on where his kids were. That's very interesting. It's diabolical. <laughs> yeah. And that confirmed his whereabouts, and then they found him and they killed him. Like, that helped them narrow in on where bin Laden was. The uh, cover uh, uh, was uh, vaccinations. A, a mailman was involved, too. A, a lot of things were involved. Yes. I mean, there's plenty. I just didn't know that the vaccination... I didn't know that angle. Yeah. Yeah. So, understandably, like, this resulted in very real consequences, including Islamic militants in Pakistan killing off public health workers legitimately attempting to work on genuine vaccination efforts, right? They just started thinking everything was a cover sure. by the CIA, of which course. the CIA gave was, them reason to Yeah, believe. I was just going to say, you can't blame them for thinking that. And of course, that resulted in fewer people getting vaccinated for polio, resulting in more paralysis and death. Thanks, Obama. <laughs> <laughs> Interestingly, strides were made in October 2021 when the Taliban agreed to the to back the WHO's polio vaccination in Afghanistan. <laughs> no, I can't. We, I guess, we, the we, Taliban we, made a, a rational choice, interestingly. Yeah, a sentence we thought we'd never say. I know, right? <laughs> in Pakistan, recent vaccination efforts have protected millions of children. And as a result, there is a lot of reason to be hopeful that polio eradication in Pakistan and Afghanistan may be imminent. So there's a lot of good news on that front. There are still some other areas where polio is still tricky, including parts of Somalia and Yemen. Basically places that are harder to get public health initiatives to work anyway. Yemen, that's a whole other, yeah. Yeah. Won't even get into that. No, no need. So while the word, you know, eradicated is bandied about, it is incredibly important to remember that polio will only remain at bay while vaccine protocols are adhered to. And it is also possible, though to be clear, incredibly rare for extremely sporadic cases to be caused by the oral vaccine since it does contain the live attenuated virus. In the U.S., the protocol is still to use the inactivated virus in a shot. Mm -hmm. So you're good. Um, Regardless, being vaccinated is the simplest and most effective way to be protected against polio. And these vaccines have been in use for decades, showing virtually no adverse effects to the person being vaccinated and nothing to lose but a risk of paralysis and death. It is so much riskier to avoid this vaccination. (laughs) Yes. Than to get it, Which, just to be the, clear. Yeah. What I would mostly like to drive home is the fact that millions of lives have been saved by this vaccine because that is what vaccines do. That's what they're made to do. Yes, there are certain individuals who may have diagnosed medical reasons for not receiving certain vaccines. And if that's the case, understood, right? Sure. If your medical provider who understands your personal health situation says, hey, this that you have makes this dangerous to you, then don't do it. That's That's understood. That's something everybody can understand as well. Yes. I mean, it it really is. But for all of the rest of us who are medically cleared to receive recommended vaccinations, it is literally our moral and ethical imperative to do so. They do not cause autism for the fucking record. And if you think that by this point, that has been so fucking debunked. I don't know what to tell you other than put your fucking tin hat on and go see if you can get CNN on the roof of your house. I don't know. Because you're a fucking idiot at this point. It's not even a hot take because that has been debunked left, right, and center. There are times in extremely rare instances where some vaccine vaccines have caused health complications in people but you know what when we're talking about public health those extremely rare cases are the risk that is run and frankly it is entirely worth the risk because not vaccinating is guaranteed to harm so many more people so stay up to date with your vaccinations. If you have your children, if you have kids, get them vaccinated. You owe it to them, you owe it to yourself, and you owe it to humanity. And that, my friends, <laughs> the end of our polio story. Yes, it is. I just think it's so incredibly important. Like, 
If you're anywhere in the anti-vax crowd, friend, I don't know what to tell you other than you are barking up the wrong tree listening to this podcast. Unless you like being challenged, in which case, enjoy. But yeah. get, get your goddamn vaccines, people. I swear <laughs> to Christ. Like, I'd never come across somebody that, like, believed in this kind of stuff until mm. I came across somebody that believed in this kind of stuff. And he showed me a tweet from this doctor that said this and that. And I was like, that's fantastic. I was like, should I show you, like, the several thousand tweets? Or, that, you know what, better yet, what this guy fuck saying. tweets. <laughs> Look at actual studies. That too. Okay? Like, peer-reviewed I was, I was boiling it down meta-analyses. And how most people get their news these days. Not, but, well... A good amount of people yeah. get the news through yeah. social media. You're like, okay, like tweets are one thing. Number one, I can refute all of those with all of these. Mm-hmm. And number two, it's just like what it's you said. It's a tweet. Yes. A tweet is and not like, research. Like, no, and it's not data. That's right. <laughs> so. It is just. It, it, and, and, and that. And there have been so many anti vax podcasters that are no longer with us. Y- yeah. Yeah. Why? I, That's don't know, the other I don't know thing. why. Yeah, right. Jeez. Well, and it's just like, imagine if parents were ridiculously anti-vax, polio could still be an issue for <laughs> us. Today, That's correct. Yes. Yeah. And you know what? It could become an issue again if enough people stop vaccinating their kids, which a lot of people who are putting their children at risk are being negligent to their children by thinking that they're helping their children. Because they're listening to People absolute fuckwits. <laughs> yes. Who are, like, morally negligent do, and completely no, responsible for this no, shit. Do doctors and institutions get things wrong? Of course they do. Of course. Like, but, but the problem but what, is... What are, what are the odds mm-hmm. that they are going to be right over somebody on the internet? Well... And the other thing is, like, most of the people who are anti-vax are people who have no... People with privilege. People with no reason to mistrust the medical establishment. There are people groups who have an understandable history of issues with the medical establishment in the United States. That... Is understandable. That is understandable. This is a whole other breed of... of Quote-unquote vaccine. It's not even vaccine hesitancy. It's anti-vaxxing, right? Mm -hmm. Those pe- these people who are anti-vaxxers are largely privileged white assholes who are being complete idiots or are persuaded by these complete idiots. I was going to say, in a combination of both, yes. obviously. And yeah. again, I'm using ableist language. I'm trying not to. But um, it's just absolutely, like, you just clearly don't feel like you have any like moral requirement to the rest of humanity you are so fucking selfish and it is disgusting Mm -hmm. and also you know what the experts don't always get things right but you know who doesn't know anything about specific things (laughs) non-experts you know fuck like these people who pretend like they're experts on shit they are no such thing you know anyway i could keep going on it's very it's not what i heard angering and discouraging i know (laughs) i know but I am very happy, and thank you, to all the past parents who did the right thing to their boomer children. The, the, well, you know what they did? They, they let a lot of boomers live, so... Uh, no, I'm <laughs> kidding, I'm kidding. <laughs> anyway, but I mean... Sorry, boomers. <laughs> your parents were born in an era prior they to were. polio vaccination. Yeah. My parents were born just after. Just after. The era of polio vaccination. If if polio vaccination hadn't been around, there's a chance either of my parents could well, not I be mean, around. Like, like what you what you had said, uh, there's a chance it could still be around today mm-hmm. if we had the political infrastructure that we have today, where people can't even agree on what reality is. Or if just f- fewer and fewer people are vaccinating their kids, it could yeah, become because, an because, issue because they can't agree on what reality is. Yes, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> reality is there are viruses. There will always be viruses. There will always be new viruses that we don't know, that we've never seen before, that do things that we can't predict. I mean, that's never going to change. Well, and we are incredibly lucky now that we live in an era where there's a whole new vaccine protocol. Correct. uh, With the, um, 
mRNA vaccines. Yeah, well, there's a dedicated that, like system. Like I said, are game changers. Yes. And it, it's really amazing. But even these non-mRNA vaccines are highly, highly effective. Yes. And what and and like I said, is there zero risk to vaccines? Not necessarily. But do you know what the risk of non-vaccination is? It is hugely more. It's it's less than a hundred. <laughs> Like how much yeah. less is the you yeah? Know. That's the problem. Whereas with the vaccine, it's it's not exactly zero. Right, but it's getting there. Yeah. It's close to it. Yeah. Yeah. And and that is in the industry I work in too. Like, like oh, we have to perfect this. Like that term is never used. Yeah. Because it's just not possible. Mm-hmm. But the but but the ninety nine percent effective rate. That's something mm-hmm. that we all go by. Mm-hmm. It's just like as long as it's ninety nine percent effective. Yes, there are going to be two or three or four. Mm-hmm isolated cases that it does this you really can't prevent that and when you're talking about public health it is about the mass right exactly most people and understandably we are all not the mass we are just one person Mm -hmm. so we tend to feel more individualistic about it but the problem is we owe it to the rest of humanity to participate on in mass (laughs) on that on mass on mass on that principle rather than acting individually well we'll see (laughs) we'll see if we can achieve that one day well maybe so that was our two uh our two polio episodes we've now covered polio (laughs) we we have uh as well as hiv aids Mm -hmm. um as well as like um thera thalidomide thalidomide Mm -hmm. yes mucormycosis Um, yes oh boy it'd be hard to go back and list all the we did the the nineteen eighteen flu pandemic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I so, don't remember what episodes we've done. This is episode three twenty one. Wow. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and on that note, this was the second half of a two parter of polio part two: Warm Springs, Cold Wars, and a man named Salk. This has been another episode of All Bad Things. I'm David. I'm Rachel. We'll see you next week. Get your vaccine. <laughs>